First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Though technically the Advent season is over, I have prolonged it by one week, choosing to preach this morning on the coming or the Advent of the Lord, in this case, his second Advent. And since the second coming focuses our attention on the future life of not only ourselves but of mankind, and on the passage of time as we wait for the great event to unfold, it seemed appropriate to consider this subject at the dawn of a new year. So, we're reading from verse 13 to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. Those who are asleep. We still use euphemisms uh, to speak of death. Virtually every culture does, and every culture has. We say nowadays that someone passed away, or that he departed from this life, and so on. You may have noticed the signs that direct traffic to Mount Tahoma National Cemetery. Read, where heroes rest. Like rest, sleep, as a metaphor for death, is richly suggestive of rest after work, thinking of life as a life of work, followed by rest, of death as only a temporary state or existence, since sleep is something from which one awakes, and of the resurrection of the body, since it is the body that is sleeping. The word cemetery itself comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. All of this betrays the instinctive recognition of human beings made as they are in the image of the eternal God, that human life is not and cannot be confined to this world. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice the typical biblical custom of referring to the dead with personal pronouns. Those, masculine plural, that is those persons who have fallen asleep. We find this throughout this passage and characteristically in the New Testament. When they took the Lord down from the cross, they took Him down, we read, not simply a dead body. Dead bodies are not, in the Bible, what used to be people. They are and continue to be human beings. Like the metaphor of death as sleep, it is a direct affirmation of the personhood of the dead human body. This biblical manner of speaking furnishes a powerful argument for burial or entombment and against the practice of cremation. Now, we do not have a record of this particular word from the Lord. Paul is probably making reference to some statement 
that Jesus made, but which is unrecorded in the four Gospels. As he does, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where he quotes Jesus as having said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Likewise, a statement that does not appear anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, the long-debated question posed by Paul's words, We who are alive is whether the apostle thought at this time in his life that Jesus would return during his lifetime, before his own death. He certainly may have entertained that belief early on. Paul's personal opinions were not infallible. He told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he would never see them again, but apparently he did. But his words here don't require the conclusion that Paul expected the Lord's return in his own lifetime, only that those Christians who happened to be alive when the Lord returned would be reunited with those who had already died. A few verses later in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he will say, as the New Testament often says, the time of the Lord's return is simply unknown. And in 1 Corinthians 6.14, he seems to class himself with those who will be raised from the dead. Okay, by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You find those same features in the descriptions of the second coming given by the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and again in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. It's worth our pausing for a moment just to reflect on that phrase, dead in Christ. What we're being taught here is that our union with Christ is closer, more profound, more permanent than any other unity any of us may experience in life. We are closer to Christ than we are to life itself, since we can die and still be united to Christ. Many martyrs lost their heads, but they didn't lose Christ. This union is a fact, irrespective of our sense of it or feeling of it at any time. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Greek word translated caught up was translated in the Latin Bible with the verb rapio, from which comes the word rapture in connection with the second coming. But the following phrase used by Paul here, translated to meet, literally for a meeting with the Lord, appears to be a technical term for the official welcome of an arriving dignitary by a deputation that comes out of the city to greet him and then to escort him in. It is used in exactly that sense in Acts 28 of the delegation of Christians, Christian leaders especially, who came out of Rome to welcome the Apostle Paul as he was arriving to the city and escorted him 
into the city. So the picture here is of the dead in Christ rising first. All of them joining together with those who are in the world at the time of the second coming in the air and forming then together with the angels, the Lord's host, as he makes his way onward down to earth. The idea is most certainly not, as too many Christians have been led to believe over the past nearly 200 years, that the Lord comes down so far toward the earth, is joined by the resurrected saints, and then returns to heaven for another seven years. If there's any reason at all to employ the term rapture, it must be made clear that it is simply one aspect of this complex event that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful verses. However enigmatic they continue to be, however little detail we are given about the when and the how of the second coming, how all of this will unfold on that great day, we still do not know but that the day is coming, you have assured us in the most unmistakable ways. And we thank you for that. And pray that you would write the truth of that upon our hearts, that we may live in its prospect, in its anticipation. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. In context, Paul is clarifying a detail of the Christian faith that had been taught already to the Thessalonian believers. If you remember, Paul had been run out of town suddenly and no doubt had not finished his instruction of these new converts. They had questions that had been forwarded to him and one of them concerned the second coming. They didn't doubt that Christ was coming again. That expectation was fundamental to the Christian faith and a basic ingredient of the gospel message. Jesus had taught repeatedly and emphatically that he was leaving the world only to return to it at some future date. And the apostles, we know from the New Testament, made the second coming a fundamental element of their instruction. And these new Christians believed it. They simply wanted to know how those who had already died would participate in the second coming. They apparently didn't doubt that their newly departed loved ones would rise from the dead, for Paul says nothing about that. But they were concerned that the dead in Christ would not be witnesses of this great event. They wouldn't share in the Lord's triumphal return. It's this concern that Paul here lays to rest. All the dead in Christ would participate in the second coming. In fact, the dead in Christ would be as much participants in that great event as the believers who are living in the world at the time the Savior appears. But I'm less concerned this morning with the details of the event that Paul describes here than the fact of it. What we have in this text is one of several descriptions, more elaborate descriptions of the second coming found in the New Testament. The Lord's second advent is repeated 
is mentioned repeatedly throughout the New Testament, but there are only several descriptions of the event. But these descriptions impress us all the more because they force on us the realization that this will be an actual event, an actual day in human history. People will rise to the alarm clock as they always had before. But the day will be like no other day. A day will dawn that will change forever the destiny of human beings because on that day, Christ himself will appear in the heavens. No day in human history will have been anything like this. The dead rising, the host of heaven visible to men, the judge and the Savior appearing, the clouds of confusion and distraction immediately swept away. Every human being knowing in an instant, for weal or for woe, who this personage is and why he has come. The second coming is proof positive that every human being, every human being who has ever lived in the world or is living in the world on that day is bound for another world, another life. Everywhere in the Bible, the meaning of the present is determined by the future. There are many ways into the nature and the meaning and the significance of the Christian faith and the message we have to proclaim to the world, but one of them surely is our expectation that Jesus Christ will bring an end to human history by his personal and physical return to earth and that his return will separate the human race into two populations forever, the saved and the lost. Now, the principle itself is hardly controversial. The logic is irresistible. The future, obviously enough, can completely alter the story of a human life as it can the story of the entire world. The question is, what is that future? It was this inexorable logic that prompted the 19th century evangelical canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, Edward, Edward Lydon, to say, if Christ is not coming back, we might as well lock the west door of this cathedral and throw the key into the river. The west door, of course, is the door through which believers enter the church. A great many Christian thinkers have said a similar thing, that without the second coming, the entire edifice of Christian truth must fall. But then, without whatever future is promised in any religion or any philosophy of life actually coming to pass, that worldview is likewise worthless. The future always, inevitably, determines the meaning of the present. What if Scrooge never learned his lesson and died like Marley, a sour, unloved old man? Tiny Tim never got the medical help he needed, and the Bob Cratchit family lived out their days in mourning for a beloved son who died too young. No one would read or watch A Christmas Carol, that's for sure. Dickens would never have written it in the first place. Who would want to read such a story? 
Or what if Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy never got over their initial distaste for one another and went on in, the, and went on in life the same people they had always been before? Elizabeth living out her days as an unmarried woman, putting up with her shrew of a mother and her dolt of a father, and Darcy marrying a suitable woman for whom he had no real affection and could not influence his character for the better. Such a story would not be worth reading, which is why Jane Austen did not write such a story. The end is the meaning of the beginning and of the middle. The writer knows how the story is going to end before he or she puts pen to paper or begins to type. But then you see, that must be true of the stories of vast numbers of people. Certainly, it is according to the Bible. The beginning, spoiled. The middle, ruined by the end. Jesus made a great point of this in his parables, as you remember. Who pities Lazarus, the beggar, now that he is in heaven? And who admires or envies the rich man whose few years of worldly comfort and ease have now been exchanged for a bed in hell? Think of the foolish virgins who imagined themselves just like the others until the bridegroom arrived and they were shut out of the wedding banquet. Everything up to that point meant nothing. Their lives were a charade even to themselves. They found that they were on the wrong side of history only at the very moment history came to its end. They were trekking toward an oasis only to discover as they reached the spot that it had been a mirage all along. Without a happy ending, the story of any life loses all of its interest, all of its charm, whether that story was one of struggle and suffering or comfort and worldly success. Such, to a great degree, is the life of this world, according to the Word of God, lived as it has been, with no thought of the world to come, no recognition that it profits a person nothing, even if he or she has gained the entire world, only then at last to lose his or her own soul. But on the other hand, what does it matter if one has endured hardship, suffered terrible want, made costly sacrifices out of loyalty to Christ, if on that day he finds himself suddenly with a perfect heart and a perfect body, one among the great host of the Lord, descending in triumph to the earth in the train of the King of Kings. Nothing so concentrates the issue of life as the prospect of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Most people, religious or otherwise, must, if they think about this at all, must hope against hope that nothing like this will ever happen. The Christian lives his or her life as he or she does, precisely because he or she knows this is certain to happen. In Robert Bella's often cited work, Habits of the Heart, published way back in the 1980s, the University of California Berkeley sociologist and his several collaborators 
concluded that Americans tend to think of the ultimate goals of a good life as matters of personal choice. For this reason, freedom is ranked in our culture as the highest cultural value. Indeed, it has practically become the definition of good in the American mind. As the authors put it, freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one, being free of arbitrary authority at work, family, and political life. What it is that one might do with that freedom is much more difficult for Americans to define. Now, there are many problems with that view of life and indeed of that view of freedom, and we are encountering all of them in our culture and politics today. But surely it ought to be obvious to anyone and supremely to any believer that while Americans in great numbers may indulge the illusion that we are free to make our own choices, that it would be unfair for anyone, God included, to judge them for the choices they have made, the second coming puts a full stop to all such thinking. A day will come when the notion that human beings are free to create their own moral universe will be suddenly and categorically exposed as humankind's ultimate folly. If Jesus Christ is coming again to vindicate those who have trusted in him and to judge those who have not, then in the nature of the case, what possible good will it have done that vast multitudes of human beings spent their lives in pursuit of nothing? When he appears, it will be beyond contradiction and protest that what the Lord Christ thinks is all that matters or all that has ever mattered. Do you see the point? This commonplace of American opinion, that we're free to make our own choices, that no one has a right to tell us what to think or what to do, absolutely depends, as does any view of the present and of human life, absolutely depends on a certain view of the future. It absolutely requires that there be no day such as Paul describes here. No day of reckoning, no appearance of the Savior of the world and the judge of all the earth at the head of his great host. Indeed, it actually requires a view of the future that almost nobody actually holds, namely that human life, brief as it is, simply ends, full stop. The person exists no longer. Only ashes scattered to the wind or a body rotting in the ground to bear witness to a life that once was. If the future is actually to be different in any respect than that, well, then one must think again about his or her life. It has been, of course, one of the most powerful arguments of Christian apologists in the modern era particularly that views of life based on an utterly impersonal future, based on the eradication or extinction of human existence, based on the objective meaninglessness of human life, cannot satisfy the human soul and invariably prove impossible to live with. 
We carry within ourselves, each and every human being does, the evidence that without a fixed moral ending to the drama of human life, the search to find real meaning and purpose in life is hopeless. So, men go on thinking that morality matters even if morality absolutely requires the objective standard and final reckoning that they have either denied or chosen not to think about. So people go on investing great significance in human life, even if they have no reason to think that human beings are, when all is said and done, anything more than highly evolved carbon-based life forms soon to disintegrate into nothing. Of course, few human beings think this through. Far from it. Most people who think like ordinary Americans think nowadays do so on the strength of an unspoken and ill-considered assumption that the future holds no reason for them to be concerned about how they live their lives in the present. No reason to reconsider the meaning and purpose of their present lives. Few of them bother to consider the fact that if that is true, their lives are now without any meaning or purpose or point. But why do they assume this? Why would they believe as they must that the future is empty of purpose, at least any purpose that they must reckon with in living their life today, why would they ever think that it lacks a conclusion, a fulfillment, or a judgment, something like what Paul has described here as the second coming of Jesus Christ, when conclusion and fulfillment and judgment and purpose are the stuff of their life every single day? It is because... They are not taking the most serious of all questions seriously. A very common problem with human beings. Ask a Christian how he knows that human life is rendered morally meaningful and utterly serious by the prospect of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he or she knows exactly what to say. He says, she says, as Paul says here in verse 14, we know that Jesus is coming again because he has already risen from the dead. He's already demonstrated his power over death. We know that the second coming is the definitive defining event of human history because Jesus said that it would be, as Paul says here in verse 15. On many occasions, the Lord Jesus took pains to assure his disciples that while he was going to leave the world, he would certainly return to bring final salvation to those who were waiting for him and judgment to those who were not. And above all, he told them all of that about the future after he had already died and risen from the dead. The resurrection changed everything as it had to have done. The second coming was no one's doctrine, not a Jew, not a Gentile. No one had heard of, no one believed in, no one had imagined the second coming 
until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that a dead man, this dead man, rose again to new and everlasting human life, body and soul, had to change everything. It is the event, Christ's resurrection, that reveals the future. All the more must it be the case when the man who rose from the dead and then ascended visibly before the eyes of his disciples into heaven is the very one who told us that he is coming again and that we would rise from the dead because he did. His first coming and its triumphant conclusion in resurrection and ascension are the proof that there will be a second coming. You need a lot of proof for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection and the ascension are a lot of proof. His virgin birth, his miracles, his teaching, his giving himself up to sacrificial death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his bodily ascension to heaven, his repeated promise to return, the promise of a man whose word we have come to trust implicitly, all prove to us beyond the shadow of a doubt that sometime in the future a day is going to dawn on which the world will behold her king coming upon the clouds, multitudes of angels and human beings in his train. So many, delirious with joy, so many others cowering in fear. The word of God said for centuries that he would come the first time, and he came. The Word of God says that He will come a second time. Who in the world can doubt that He will? This is the Christian hope, as Paul puts it in verse 13. Hope is a word that in our common usage often means wish or desire. We say, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. In Tacoma, Washington, as we know, that is often a forlorn hope. But in Christian usage, hope does not mean merely wish or desire. It's not a way of expressing what we would like to come to pass, though we don't know whether or not it will. In the Bible, hope is a synonym for faith, for confidence based on evidence that the future will come to pass as God has promised it will. Hope is objective as well as subjective. That is, it refers to a future that has been made certain by the word and the work of God himself. It's in this sense that Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the unbelieving world is without hope and without God in the world. They're without hope because they are without God. They don't know who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, what he has promised to do for those who trust in him. They don't know the truth of what he has told us about the future or why the future must be as it will be. Do you realize this is why the gospel has had such power in the world, has had it from the very beginning? <coughs> there have always been, there were then, there are today, religions, philosophies of life that promise some vague form of continuing existence after death, though it was only that, a mere promise, 
in very vague terms. There was no evidence, no demonstration that it could deliver on such a promise. There was none of the ringing certainty, such as the Christians brought with them, having witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven, and having in their hearts the promise of his return when they were still able to remember the sound of his voice. Listen to this letter written in the second century by a woman to her friend who had lost a loved one. So typical of the sentiments of people both in those days and in our own when face to face with death. Irene to Taonophris and Philo. Good comfort. I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. And all things whatsoever were fitting, I have done. And all mine, Epaphroditus and Thermuthion, Philion, Apollonius and Plantus. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Irene, an Egyptian woman, feels for her married friends, Philo and Tarnophris, who have lost a son to death. She shares their pain because she too had lost a son, her Didymus. She wants to console, but she has no consolation to give. She's performed the rites, but what else? Perhaps that's why the letter is so short. She has nothing to say. Against such things, one can do nothing. And then she finishes with a sentence that she has herself just rendered meaningless. Comfort one another. How? The great 19th century British scholar J.D. Lightfoot drew eloquent attention to the contrasting approaches to death of the Christians and the pagans in those long ago days. Here he's speaking of the difference between the Christian graves in the catacombs, the underground burial chambers used by Christians in Roman times, and the graves of the pagans above them lining the great Appian Highway. The contrast between the gloomy despair of the heathen and the triumphant hope of the Christian mourner is nowhere more forcibly brought out than by their monumental inscriptions. The contrast of the tombs, for instance, in the Appian Way, above and below ground, has often been observed. On the one hand, there is the dreary wail of despair, the effect of which is only heightened by the pomp of outward splendor from which it issues. On the other, the exulting psalm of hope, shining the more brightly, through all the ill-written, ill-spelled records amidst the darkness of the subterranean caverns. In antiquity, generally, there was neither joy nor triumph nor celebration in the face of death, but a general hopelessness. Theocritus, the Greek poet, wrote, Hopes are for the living, the dead are without we go through the motions of celebration. 
But no one really has anything important to say in the unbeliever's funeral or celebration of life as it has now become. What is that but another way of saying hopes are for the living? The dead are without hope. How different the Christians with their characterization of the dead as sleeping and about to awake. With their hope of the Lord's return in triumph. Their confident expectation of their eventual vindication. Their Savior had come out of the grave and told them they would as well. He left this world as his disciples watched after often telling them that he would return to the earth as he left it. They knew he was coming again. And that changed everything now in the present. The future determines the meaning of the present. Paul's picturing this day for us. We are expected to dwell on the scene, to see it unfolding in our mind's eye, absolutely real as it will be on that day when the voice of the archangel sounds and the sound of the trumpet of God is heard, perhaps first in the distance and then growing ever nearer. The dead are rising. Magnificent mausoleums are bursting in which lie inurned the ashes of sceptered monarchs. Moss-covered sepulchers are cleaving beneath which molder the remains of priests and high priests, nobles and princes, legislators and warriors, philosophers, orators and poets, while the grass-grown mounds under which the slave and the peasant repose in death are not disobedient to the heavenly call. From dim cathedral aisles, from every crowded churchyard, from forest burying grounds, from profoundest ocean depths, the long-forgotten dead are starting into new immortal being amidst the thrilling realities of the judgment day. The solitary traveler rises from the lonely grave which he found in a land far distant from home, while from the narrow beds in which they slept side by side in the populous cemetery, whole families rise together. The mother once more clasps in her arms the babe that slumbered with her in the same grave and mingled its dust with hers. If that day is coming, and it is, what now? Well, says Paul, encourage one another with these words. Think of what it will be to have your sorrows wiped away to discover in an instant how happy a human being can actually be. Ponder what it must mean to be always with the Lord thereafter. Consider how you will want to have lived your life on that day. And then live it that way now. Or as the Apostle John put it, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen.